This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by Genetech, building physical security solutions that allow you to see, know, and understand your environment today and in the days to come. For more information, please visit them at genetech.com. Just having spent so much time in the protective intelligence space and in the protection world, the threats against the CEOs to include family members and the executive kidnapping threats is, is troublesome. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 4 million Americans quit their jobs in July alone. And resignations peaked around April. Uh, they've also since remained relatively high, but a record 10.9 million open jobs um, are out there right now uh, as of the end of July. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Fred Burton is the executive director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence and a former police officer, special agent, and a New York Times bestselling author. Mr. Fred Burton, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks for having me back on, Chuck. Today we're going to talk about the findings from Ontic's 2021 Mid-Year Outlook State of Protective Intelligence Report. That's quite a mouthful, but I, I just bet that the report is filled with even more stuff. One thing we talked about a few minutes ago before the show was how surprised you were at the candor in the responses. Tell us about it. Yeah, Chuck, uh, I have to say that this is our second uh, study we've done at the Center for Protective Intelligence here at Ontech. And there were a couple of deviations with our second one, but the candor of the 300 individuals that we surveyed, 200 of which were physical security and chief security officers and the 100 IT security professionals. We wanted to draw in IT this go around because of that physical cyber convergence we're seeing on the horizon. So it was very enlightening. Now, when you say convergence, uh, I laugh. If you weren't thinking about convergence when you had your first beeper or BlackBerry back in the day, I think you kind of missed the point, right? <laughs> physical security, cyber security. <laughs> It's all security, isn't it? And I think the physical people have kind of gotten away from owning that responsibility on their side of it, because certainly had physical security participated more, maybe we wouldn't have this convergence problem right now. But I'm glad people are trying to do it. Tell us about some of these findings. Uh, anything that jumped out, of, out at you that was uh, surprising from last year's report? There were a few takeaways, Chuck, that uh, really resonated with me. Uh, for example, physical threats are rising. They're becoming unmanageable and they're missed. And as a result of intelligence failures, harm, threats, and damage have occurred in American companies. And this to me is very, very interesting. CEOs who voiced public stances or refrained both received physical threats as it pertains to social justice issues. So. It's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, and either or, but CEOs still receive threats. Those are some of the big takeaways from my eyes, and we could drill down into a little bit more that are more nuanced, but uh, uh, the bottom line is that threat landscape has just drastically increased. 75% of the respondents said that physical threats will increase as they begin to reopen 
and returned to the office. And 64% said, my company is experiencing an increase in physical threat activity. Any data on where this is taking place, right? Because a lot of people went to work from home, maybe close to 50% at one time. Are the people answering you defining the workplace as the old-fashioned physical office or incidents arising out of a home workspace? Yeah, that's a very good point. And that's one of our follow-up kind of questions we want to drill down next go-around. I think it's a combination of both. And the reason I say that is, as an old protection officer, Chuck, and this will resonate with you, one of the more interesting nuggets in our survey was that 15%, 15% of the individual surveyed had experienced executive kidnapping threats. And 22% said that our CEO or family members have received physical threats. And if you do the math on that, Chuck, 45 of the 300 companies have received executive kidnapping threats, and 66 of the 300 companies have received threats against our CEO and family members. I mean, think about that. Any indication that there are criminal enterprises involved in this that are more orchestrated than than random citizen violence. I just get a feel there's something else going on here. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think as you look at this, I think it's a confluence of events. I think we've had our dreadful pandemic, and to your point, uh, which I agree with, has now become the baseline. Let's face it, uh, you have some companies with only 10% uh, return back to an actual physical office, but for the most part, people are still operating in a virtual capacity which, as you and I both know in this space, poses unique security challenges. So, you know, where does the work end and where does the home begin? And it's all blended today. And then, of course, we had uh, the horrific events on January the 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And, And let's face it, we're still dealing with a very polarized, bifurcated nation here inside the continental United States. And you throw on things such as the Afghanistan withdrawal. There's a lot of geopolitical events that come into play as well. So what's your takeaway on using the data to have a more effective response? I think it it sounds like it's going to be a new paradigm on getting back to normal, so to speak, or returning to work, or just adopting our current phase as the new normal. You know, security guards kind of went away from buildings for a long time because buildings were empty. But as we reopen and we have these physical threats on the horizon and this huge increase, What are we going to do to change our response? Well, I think it's interesting when you look at that because I hear from CSOs every day that uh, they're thrown into the public health debate and they've got a new task of responsibilities or part of that mission creep now has included health and trying to navigate through that and the threats resulting as, as a result of just the return to the workplace and those kinds of variables that come into play. So the CSO of today, again, has another security stacking kind of challenge placed upon them, which includes uh, COVID, health, going forward, touchless entry as we revisit back into the workplace. And I think the only way that you can navigate around this, Chuck, to be blunt, is technology. I think you need technology to help you get through this. Well, I agree. And the technology to me translates to information, right? You use the technology to pull information out so you can make more informed decisions. 
Right. And utilizing the data to help you make, to your point, better informed judgments as to what to look for over the horizon. And then also what is going to be your new steady state of just operational tempo. And, you know, I'm a big believer on how to utilize these kinds of forecasting data to help you navigate your ongoing threat landscape so you understand exactly what's taking place. Now, out of that uh, 300 people you interviewed and companies, I, I, I assume, do they break either way as far as, you know, 50% are IT companies, 50% are manufacturing, you know, something like that? Or is it just, is it just one, sort of, one sort of company? It's all across the spectrum uh, from uh, multinational corporations and, and various sectors from uh, manufacturing to financial uh, to uh, all different kind of segments in society, which we wanted a broad spectrum just so we had uh, a good picture of the landscape as it pertains to what we're seeing in light of the pandemic and the return to work or the kickstart back to work, however you want to phrase it. And, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, though, the one thing that I sense just taking in all the data is that there's a tremendous amount of concern as we do start to go back to the office. And there's not a lot of answers as to how to navigate that. And companies are literally trying to benchmark, learn from each other, and share, and uh, trying to stay in front of this. And I think from a holistic perspective, Chuck, I, I think there's no way this can be done on your own in the security spectrum anymore, meaning this has to be a holistic kind of response as you bring in HR, corporate legal, facilities, uh, maybe even environmental health and safety as partners to try to look at this in a holistic kind of fashion. Well, I agree with you 100%. And what's interesting about the cross-section of the people you interviewed is I think it makes your, your data more significant in a way, right? There's something very new going on here. In other words, this isn't a bunch of IT people that are always on social media, always arguing on Twitter, and so they're subject to Twitter attack, so to speak, right? They're, not, they're in the game of this uh, public uh, discussion. Some of these people aren't on social media. Some of these CEOs are just doing their job, and they're still being targeted. So something else is definitely going on here that's going to require a new response. Yeah, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, out of all the data that we collected, just having spent so much time in the protective intelligence space and in the protection world, the threats against the CEOs to include family members and the executive kidnapping threats is, is troublesome. And um, as you look at this in context and you have, you know, marketing departments and uh, public relations departments that are encouraging CEOs to take a stance one way or the other, uh, what it's showing is that you do have blowback and ramifications of either supporting issues and not supporting issues. So, you know, I think it's one of those kinds of things that um, as you look at this just from a society, it's tough to navigate where you go going forward. And, you know, I'm old enough 
to remember, you know, the original days of rage from the 60s and enter the 70s. And you think about that in context, we're almost in that environment here inside the continental United States, absent, obviously, uh, the massive bombings that occurred in the late 60s and the 70s. I think what's more dangerous about now is that uh, information is instantaneous and information is not as reliable. You might be responding to something emotionally that's completely fake, which causes a whole nother problem. It's, it's definitely a volatile situation. And that is a very good point, Chuck. Uh, you know, trying to determine credibility, reliability, uh, fake news, getting to the ground truth, as we used to call it, uh, for accurate information, trying to separate the signals from the noise, and then looking at those signals and trying to evaluate whether or not that individual is actually just a howler or is that person a hunter. And I think that's where you really dive into your ability to analyze that data quickly, but you have to capture it first. And that was always the challenge when, when, when I was an agent and still is today in the government, is the ability to capture that adverse intelligence signal that's really worrisome, or is it just some individual that uh, is spouting off because he or she doesn't like the position that you've taken on whatever issue it might be. Mr. Fred Burton, thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Very good stuff. It sounds different from all the other reports I've heard this year. This is very specific data that people need to pay close attention to because it's changed in our entire response paradigm. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Chuck. I really appreciate it. October is Cybersecurity Month, and what better guest could we have than Mr. Matthew Chevalier? He's the Principal Security Architect and Manager for Genetech. Mr. Matthew, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. Always love speaking to Genetech. You guys always had the best solutions. And you're a legacy company. You guys have been around a long, long time. So really, you know what you're talking about. And I love speaking with architects because you guys are designing things not from 30,000 feet nowadays, but from outer space because all systems are so complicated. So tell me, Matthew, what are the top three things someone can do today to ensure that their security system is secure? Yeah, okay. So think about this. Think about how users are logging in. Uh, basically, well, they just log in, right? So it would be the same for hackers. So the first thing you need to make sure is that default passwords aren't used anywhere in the physical security systems that you manage. In fact, we did some research on this some years ago, and we found out that 22% uh, of systems that were used in production at the time had at least one camera using uh, default manufacturer's credentials. So certainly this is something I would look into first. Use long, unique, and uh, random passwords. Uh, think about uh, user access as well. So people are notoriously bad at managing password. They lose it, they reuse the same everywhere, uh, and they use the name of their cat or the birthday of their child, right? So uh, you have to do something about this. The most straightforward solution uh, is to implement password policy and uh, multi-factor authentication. So that's the first point, uh, control the access. Next, make sure that your devices are, are up to date. Let me tell you an anecdote on this. We used to do a, a roadshow uh, with Genetech uh, some years ago. So we would, very, we would uh, visit various cities and talk about cybersecurity. 
In it, I had a demo portion where I showed how easy it is to hack a security camera. Basically, I was replacing the footage of the camera and display a movie instead. The way I was doing it is by searching on Google for something called an exploit. Uh, basically, an exploit, as the name implies, is uh, using a known vulnerability in a specific firmware version. Typically, it's pretty much point and click, so they are easy to use. Now, the vulnerability exploited by this is known by the manufacturer and has been patched. But people are, are, not, are not good at deploying patches in a timely fashion. So this is not fun, not glamour, but uh, it needs to be done. Take care of these problems uh, before it takes care of you. Finally, supply chain risk. Uh, this year has been, has been uh, about supply chain risk big time. Solar wind, colonial pipeline, those are all examples of supply chain problems. Even President Biden issued an executive order uh, covering this, uh, in fact. So concretely, what you need to do is make sure that the solutions that you resell uh, are uh, made by people that take this into account. Now, this can be hard to assess, uh, but uh, you, can, uh, you can do it by gauging the maturity levels of your partner. So do they have any cyber certification? Do they have a vulnerability disclosure program? Uh, how they react when they have vulnerabilities? Uh, do they try to minimize the risk or do they provide, uh, are they proactive about it? Do they conduct annual pen tests? If yes, ask the result, ask to see it. Those are uh, examples of points uh, that you can check to infer the cyber maturity level of a supplier. Now, Matthew, if there is a breach, you know, we have a problem, obviously, but there's some steps we can take to mitigate that, isn't there? Tell us about that. Yes. So ideally, uh, you think about what you're going to do before something bad happens. This is called making an incident response plan. Uh, but say that uh, you have an incident on your hand. What to do? First is the identification phase. So basically, you're trying to confirm that a breach uh, is taking place. Next step, containment. So this is like stop the bleeding. Make sure that the problem doesn't get worse and that it doesn't spread. What to do is uh, dependent on the specific of the situation, but it can be about uh, isolating the network segment that are under attack. Next, eradication. You want to uh, eliminate the infection and remove the malware from the affected system. You want to find the root cause of the problem and you want to take action to prevent similar attacks in the future. Next, recovery. So return the affected system to their uh, working states. You want to monitor and verify and test that those systems are uh, behaving correctly and, and normally to make sure that the, 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 the problem is not there anymore. And finally, lesson learned. So at this stage, you take a look at the incident with a humble but a, a critical high to identify areas of improvement. I can tell you, for example, that uh, potential customers that have been hacked in the past are a lot more diligent and ask a lot of questions about the security posture of our products before buying. Clearly, they don't want to get caught a second time and are trying to cover all angles during their purchasing phase. All right, excellent. Now, what are your top cybersecurity system 
hygiene tips. I think hygiene is the key word here. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it is an interesting choice of word. Uh, it comes from the medical world, obviously, uh, and it means maintaining health and preventing disease through uh, cleanliness. So cleanliness here would translate to uh, proactive maintenance. Like I said earlier, make sure that the stuff that is uh, that, that you use is up to date and seek out if it is up to date. Uh, seek if there are known vulnerability uh, for anything that you are responsible to manage. Next, systematize some of your procedures. Cyber hygiene is about being consistent. Ideally, uh, you can automate those procedures, granting access to new employees, adding new camera in your VMS system, etc. Those kinds of things can be automated. You also want to make your, your life easier. For user authentication, use a common identity provider like Active Directory, for example. So when an employee is fired, you just have to disable his account in one location and not in the like dozens of systems that he probably has access to. This is a lot less uh, error prone that way. Finally, have an asset inventory. Uh, to protect yourself adequately, you have to know what you have. So, uh, so do this, know what you have and know what your user are having, as this is really the, the first step that you, that you need to do uh, to, uh, to do the proactive maintenance uh, phase that I was referring to earlier. Mr. Matthew from Genetech, Genetech.com, a legacy company, been around a long time. They walk the walk and talk the talk. Good stuff, my friend, especially during Cybersecurity Awareness Month. You've really raised the bar here. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you. Bye-bye. Eric Anton, CPP PSP, is a Chief Security Officer who has worked in the manufacturing, hospitality, and energy sectors in the security industry. He is also a former Special Agent for the U.S. Department of State. Eric Antons, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Good to be back, Chuck. Thanks. It is good to be back. It's been about a year we talked last. Uh, today's topic is onboarding beyond Zoom. You know, subtitle, onboarding in the age of COVID, virtual onboarding, whatever you want to call it. Since we talked, brand new thing, isn't it? <laughs> this has just kind of come up in the last year. Uh, give me a broad sense of what the virtual onboarding is all about. Well, yeah, I mean, the big thing to keep in mind, I think, and what really ran through my mind as I was going through this process is just the amount of turnover that's taking place throughout all industries. Um, for example, you know, I, I joined a, a new company um, it, about a year ago. And at the time, um, I was just curious. I looked it up. How many people lost their jobs over the pandemic? And I, I looked it up. And I know stats don't come across an audience probably well. But in 2020, about 8.8% of global working hours were lost relative to Q4 of 2019. So what does that mean? The equivalent of about 255 million jobs lost. And I just read a story in Harvard Business Review just yesterday. It's called uh, Who is Driving the Great Resignation? Some interesting stats. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 4 million Americans quit their jobs in July alone. And resignations peaked around April. Uh, they've also since remained relatively high. But a record 10.9 million open jobs um, are out there right now uh, as of the end of July. And, you know, of course, some people may not come back to the workforce, but I think the majority of people will at some point. 
So that means that loads of people will be starting new jobs. And also if you're a people leader, you're going to be bringing a lot of folks onto your team. So more than at any other time, probably in my lifetime, has onboarding been so critical. And it's further challenged by the fact that we're not going back to the office uh, anytime soon, or most people aren't at the office. We're not traveling. We're not out there seeing what we're dealing with uh, relative to the new So it's incredibly challenging, but it can be done. Eric, I hear what you're saying. I just have a feeling, in a sense, this is a little different. Uh, there's a McDonald's in Palm Springs when I was driving to California last week. They are offering $18 an hour, and they can't fill those spots. And by the way, that McDonald's has to close two days a week because they don't have enough staff. Even here in Phoenix, they're offering 13 14 bucks an hour to start at McDonald's. Unheard of, right? I mean, it, it is very, very different, and, and turnover is the key. So how do we deal with the onboarding issue virtually? I have hired literally thousands and thousands of people in my career uh, in security, personal one-on-one interviews. You just get a sense of body language. There's so many other components there. Is the virtual onboarding really as effective, I, I, I think, or, or is it just a different way to do it? Well, I think, you know, so there are two things that, that play here. Certainly interviewing is, is more challenging than ever before. I mean, I interviewed all throughout last summer for this position where I am currently. I, I never once visited our headquarters. I never once met the actual person who hired me until, gosh, several months after I actually started the job. And that's as a CSO of a you know major corporation. So very odd in that regard. So, you know, I, I didn't even know what my boss, how tall he was, or, you know, he certainly didn't know, you know, for all he knew, I might not have even had legs because, you know, we saw each other through the webcam so much. Um, so it's certainly, certainly odd. But I think we can kind of take advantage of this in some ways too, in that if we have some kind of an onboarding strategy in mind, even as we're going through the interviewing process, we can still get to that break-even point to where we're adding as much value as we're taking and establishing credibility and trust uh, much quicker than if we had no strategy at all. Now, I can see in one way where this virtual onboarding really is working to the advantage of a lot of employees. Because to your point, have, haven't we just almost eliminated anybody's preconceived notions of what an employee is or isn't or internal biases or prejudices because we're just looking at somebody on a camera and, uh, you know, it's really based on their performance and their background, the resume, isn't it? Yeah, and certainly. And I, I think it comes down to a, a, a lot about how we present ourselves more than ever before. I mean, we can't rely on our presence. Sometimes, you know, in security, we talk a lot about command presence. And that tends to be a, a big factor in you know, the, the folks that we hire for these kinds of roles. Well, over the Zoom, you know, camera, it's really tough to determine what kind of presence a person has. So you have to be a little bit smarter about it. You have to ask the right questions and you have to go in with some kind of a general strategy in mind. So with me, I mean, the big thing was, thank goodness, you know, when I, as I was interviewing, I was able to identify some uh, things I, I just kept continued to ask in the ensuing interview to kind of help form a, a better picture in terms of what I was walking into. You know, are there any burning platforms, uh, things that require immediate attention? Um, asking general questions that usually come up in interviews, all of a sudden it takes a new meaning. You know, why is this position available? Uh, was there something about my predecessor that did not work out? Did they just retire or, or 
where there are actually some issues. And as a result, you start to kind of put the pieces together. I also like to think, you know, most of us have some kind of fundamental interview um, investigative skills. You know, we're security folks, we have that kind of background. I would look at every interview as a case. So you're already doing your research well in advance of having that first interview. You know, what do you know about the company, their finances? Have you read the latest 10K report? Have you talked to people who have worked at the company? What do you know about the company culture? What do you know about your potential boss? What can you find out about them online? These are the tools you have available to you. So when you go in, you're fairly well armed to answer the questions, but also uh, present some questions to them about uh, you know, this new role you're likely to take up. And then once you get hired, well, wonderful, great, you got the job. Um, you know, something that I did, and I didn't really think about it too much at the time, but I set up about 39 short 30-minute onboarding calls with everybody from administrative assistants all the way up to our CEO. Uh, I had a little strategy in mind. Um, I started off with, you know, folks that were uh, my direct reports for the most part because I figured they could probably fill me in the most on truly what I'd walked into. And with each successive call, I kind of worked the chain of command so that by the end, I had my talking points pretty well polished. Uh, I knew of certain landmine discussions to avoid. Uh, and I also just had a better understanding of the organization on a whole. And what I learned in those 39 onboarding calls was, was just fascinating. And it just kind of helped me, I think, get farther ahead than had I been in the field. Um, or I'll say this, it was a substitution. I wouldn't say the best substitution for what would normally be uh, a three-month period of being out in the field on a consistent basis. Now, I actually think that's brilliant. So I remember my days at Disney, uh, my first day of work, uh, I was told, you're not starting work for two weeks. And I spent two weeks going to every other department that my department interacted with, spending a day with those people, getting to know them, talking about it. And it gave me a better overview of the uh, company. I, I think your calling strategy is brilliant because you know what? You might not have met 30 people in the physical environment doing that. And maybe you're really establishing a better relationship this way. So maybe the virtual part of it, uh, in this sense, works out better. Yeah, I mean, people were, were available, certainly. Um, you know, so the downside is nobody's traveling. The upside is nobody's traveling. So they don't have the excuse that they don't have the time to meet with you. I think a lot of companies, too, have kind of adjusted their expectations about onboarding a little bit, too. You know, again, it's all about this break-even point where you're adding as much value as you're taking. And I remember when I transitioned to my first company in the private sector from the government, I had a discussion around this with a, uh, an HR recruiter. I said, you know, what's a reasonable expectation for your first year or two? And she said, well, you know, generally speaking, at our company, in our industry, um, you know, the first year is it's accepted that it's all about understanding the company's processes, uh, their internal um, politics, uh, the personalities, and the platforms. You know, we don't really expect honestly, a whole lot of, out of the person for the first year. But we do expect you to hit the break-even point maybe six months into it, if you're hired correctly. Again, this, this varies a lot based on your position. Now, if you're hired for a very specific skill, uh, well, you know, you might hit that break-even point much earlier. But if you're a generalist or a people leader, uh, it may take quite a bit longer. So they've also adjusted that timeline given unique challenges of the pandemic. Now, if you're going to give somebody some advice, on, on this onboarding. Uh, walk me through some of your best practices. I, I like this phone call thing you're doing. I think that's brilliant. 
uh, you've really thought this through. You didn't just turn on that Zoom camera and say, hi, it's me, hire me. You've really thought this process through, haven't you? Well, and I had some good guidance. Again, the, the book by Michael Watkins, I, I have since learned that a lot of people have read this book. And if you haven't read it, I recommend you do so as quickly as possible. I wish I'd read it years ago. Because it's not only about onboarding, but it's about your first few years actually on the job and how you can make the most of it. Because you know, not only are you transitioning in, but somebody else has probably transitioned out that you may be replacing. Um, so it, it can be highly disruptive if you don't do it right. So, you know, again, with each interview coming on board, you become more and more polished. You apply what you learn with each successive call. Uh, you're saving those uh, interviews with senior leaders for very last. So you should have, you know, be more educated about the company. You have your talking points polished. You can avoid landmine discussions that could cause possible friction. Keep the short, the calls very short, you know, and then much like an interview during an investigation, the first few minutes are very informal. Um, it's very similar, you know, establishing some basic rapport. Uh, resist the urge to talk too much, especially about yourself. I mean, a lot of times when you're actually interviewing, uh, you have to kind of almost fight the urge um, to not talk enough about yourself. But now that you're on board, it's all about taking information in. So listen, just listen a little bit more than perhaps normal. You know, this is an opportunity for you to learn about them and the company and the culture, as well as a chance to leave a very favorable impression of yourself with them. And then after that rapport building, you probably have about 20 minutes. And But if you ask the right questions, you can actually mine quite a bit of information. And so within Watkins' book, he uh, gives you some ideas of some questions you can ask. And I tried to stay on three essential questions within those 20 minutes. Number one, you know, what are the biggest challenges your department is facing or is likely to face in the near future? Number two, what are the most promising unexploited opportunities for growth? And lastly, if you were me, what would you focus on in the next 90 to 120 days? So you're, in some ways, you're asking the same question in three different ways. You're triangulating as you were probably taught in interviewing courses. And the reactions to these questions will vary, but responses should be relatively consistent. And at that point, you start documenting all the responses and you start to see certain patterns emerging. And I found that throughout the 39 calls, I identified really four major issues that I needed to focus on. And that became my gap analysis for my first year. And um, everything's kind of moving forward relatively congruently with those four identified areas. Stay focused, ask the right questions, tabulate the answers, form a gap analysis as a result, and then use that to propel your strategy moving forward. It can be done. Excellent, excellent advice, Mr. Eric Antons. Thanks for coming on Screen Mansion Highlights, my friend. And let's not uh, let's not wait another year to talk. Let's uh, let's get in touch sooner. Sounds great, Chuck. Thanks.